Welcome to the Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. I'm your host, Nabil Hanan, Managing Director at NetSpy. This is a podcast sponsored by NetSpy as a place to share best practices and trends in the world of cybersecurity and vulnerability management. Portions of this interview will appear in print on the NetSpy executive blog. To find out more, go to www.netspy.com slash agent of influence. This is an episode in a series of interviews with industry leaders and security gurus. And it's a pleasure to have with me today, Doug Brush. Hi, Doug. Hello, how are you? I'm well, how are you? I'm doing great, thanks. Doug is an information security executive with over 27 years of entrepreneurship and professional technology experience, and is currently a global security advisor at Splunk. He is a globally recognized expert in cybersecurity, incident response, digital forensics, and information governance. In addition to serving as a CISO and leading enterprise security assessments, he has conducted hundreds of investigations involving hacking, data breaches, trade secret theft, employee misconduct, and various other legal and compliance issues. He is the founder and host of the Cybersecurity Interviews, a popular information security podcast. Doug is also committed to raising awareness around mental health, self-care, neurodiversity, and diversity, equity, and inclusion in the information security industry. So Doug, why don't we get started? Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got started with security? I don't know, after a, a bio read like that, now I feel really old. Um, yeah, God, I mean, it goes back early 90s, probably even before that. You know, my history with technology and computers goes back to really the early 80s. My parents were doing a lot of consulting work. Their communications consultants wrote several books on it, and particularly around corporate television, internal communications, and this thing, this this computer started coming out in the late 70s and 80s, and they were starting to research it. And with some of the work they were doing with Texas Instruments, ATI 994A showed up at the door, and they said, well, let the kid play with it, and played lots of Hunt the Wumpus, but what, a lot of what I did too is found out, well, you can write this thing called Basic, and would script out spaghetti code for hours just to see a, you know, a little red box bounce around the screen. But to me, that was, that was cool, and continue to get involved with computers throughout the 80s, early 90s. And, you know, as I left high school, everybody said, you know, you have an aptitude for technology and computers. I'm living in Poughkeepsie area at the time. And for those that know the Mid-Hudson region, that's big blue country. That's where IBM was headquartered. I mean, down the road from me, they ship mainframes all over the world. Professional services is down in Armonk. I mean, it was, you want to get into technology, you work for IBM, you learn mainframes, cobalt, things like that. And I'm like, well, hold on a second. These PCs that I've been playing with when I look at the market penetration, there's about 80, 90% of them are PCs uh, that are being produced or Mac, or Windows-based machines, a few Macs, but there's this huge market out there that's being under-addressed. I was like, well, what's being done with those? And I said, oh, those, you know, that's just for small businesses. I was like, okay, but all the big businesses are still using them. They're moving away from terminals. They're using Windows 3.1, 3.11 and connecting more. And people are like, well, they very still thought of it as very terminal uh, mainframe relationships. It's like, I don't think that's going to way that's going to be in the future. So, I started supporting building out lands for small businesses, medium businesses, and eventually got some enterprise customers where I was putting in full network installations uh, for some pretty big logos where I was basically traveling around the world and setting up kind of war rooms and different things for corporate offsites. But the hacker route to me was was still there. I mean, even in the 80s and early 2000s, I was following the Mitniks, the well, really all the Kevins, but everybody that was getting in trouble and said, you know, that is what spoke to me was the, in the kind of the exploratory way of trying to 
understand computers and technology, questioning things. The thing is, I, I really wasn't excited about the concept of jail. Uh, I don't think I would fare well there. I'm a very delicate flower. So to me, it was like, okay, I just, how, how do I integrate some of this? And certainly at that point, the internet starts coming around and I'm doing a, a ton of malware remediation and helping people kind of, you know, re-image machines and do things as, as these malware are spreading and kind of starting a very early stage reverse engineer that, but say, gosh, I really want to be in security. I'm a real, I'm a hacker at heart. I'm still reading 2600. I'm listening to off the hook podcasts, trying to figure out a way into the industry. So around the same time of early 2000s is really when I decided I was going to focus purely on cybersecurity. And um, Merrill Lynch was a big customer of mine at the time. They were the one I was traveling with the most, but they quickly disappeared and I had that window of opportunity to kind of pivot and change and decided I was going to start a cybersecurity consulting firm, primarily focused in the legal arena. So where I would do um, forensic investigations for trial. So say somebody says, hey, look, we have this computer. We're not really sure what it's done, but we need the evidence out of it. We need somebody to act as a disinterested third party to do an evaluation, write a report, something in, and I hate to say dumbed down because that's not the real way to look at it, but in digestible form for a judge, a jury, and either side of the case to really help understand what happened on this computer uh, with the forensic artifacts are there and articulate in a way that's understandable. So I was able to start doing that and really got some momentum there. Got to do some more proactive stuff and some more security operation stuff. And that one thing leads to another. And as I built out doing the forensic practice, I moved from my practice into a new company, took that practice to another company, kept kind of growing throughout the industry, continued to do more where I became kind of a jack of many trades, but still trying to get the depth of all of them. So pen testing, vulnerability assessments, security build outs, incident response, really kind of done it all and really saw there's a lot of things that we're, I'm seeing over and over again. Like how do I operationalize my knowledge and started doing more of the security operations, but from a leadership perspective, okay, what does the CISO have to do? How do you line those business objectives, further operationalize it so things can get done in the technology sphere and really understand that full process then bubble up. Okay. How are we managing risk to the business and speaking in business terms? So to me, I've really landed in a great spot in my career now where I'm doing the business stuff. I'm able to basically, the, the joke is that I've even put in my, my LinkedIn profile, the CISO whisper. And that was some of the folks at Splunk started calling me that because they would say like, you have this amazing ability to sit and listen to a CISO, understand what their objectives are, be a shoulder to cry on, quite frankly, and say, okay, here's what I think you need to do in the next, the next couple months to get things going, both with your security operations and how you're presenting this information to the board. And that's basically what I do now. I travel around the globe speaking to CISOs and speaking on CISO panels and doing a lot of that work to understand how leadership can move their programs forward because there's still a huge gap in saying, okay, how do we manage risk around the business with technology? Yeah, no, that's that's great. And that's definitely very helpful and, and helps us get an understanding of your true depth and breadth of what you've been doing. I want to kind of go back to a very early thing that you said around your first computer and, and coding in BASIC. I'm curious, what was the first piece of code or piece of program that you wrote, compiled and ran that's still memorable to you? Memorable. Wow, that's a tough one. No, there was, there was this magazine and I posted it on my website. I can't, I have to look it up again, but it was in the back of it, there would just be just printed code and you would just go 10, blah, 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 go to, and it was just, you would just sit there and just script, script, script. It would break to go figure out where the break line and just keep going and do it. Um, but it was like, very, I remember being very early stage. It was like, um, 
was really it was like it wasn't like pong where you can be interactive it was pong that you can sit and watch a box moving up and down a screen so it was it was surprisingly even more boring than pong because you couldn't play it you can only watch it you know later on i got into things like what really i think dissuaded me from coding was in the the mid 90s when i was doing a lot of uh dbase 4 stuff so i would script and automate a ton of html stuff for internal cbt's particularly for this teleco they had to do all this internal training modules and i was building them out from scratch so this is like before all the stuff that people have now there was no html5 there's no interaction it was radio button select and, and grading scoring and i had to build it all in this database back and by the time i was done there was full software packages out that they did it when i was done with my contract i'm like i can't do this anymore and i, I focus more on the infrastructure and networking again at that point Awesome. Awesome. Well, I do want to talk a little bit more about your kind of experience in the M&A space. Can you share a little bit about what you believe some of the challenges are that companies are facing, especially during a merger and how it may affect their IT and, and security operations? Yeah, it was funny. I was just dealing with a customer in the Midwest on this last week. Healthcare provider bought another state healthcare provider. Looks great on the balance sheet. Operationally, I get why they look at things from, say, like a medical record system, things like that. ERPs and stuff like that. Their databases, we do all that. The problem is, is that there's not really a full risk assessment to understand where all the other skeletons in the closets can be. And so often what happens is, is in the M&A deals, they look good on paper, but when they try to integrate the IT systems fully past, say, some of the core business applications, you know, really the infrastructure and things like that it's where things start to fail. So say, for example, you're one shop and you're Apollo shop and you're merging with the Cisco shop and you're saying, okay, well, maybe we'll just reduce our headcount on FTEs for network engineers. Okay, well, I have the Cisco guy that knows ASAs and PIPs and see it in his sleep. He doesn't know anything about Apollos. So I can't just say it's just a headcount reduction that we're getting an efficiency by merging these two together because it doesn't work that way. These are two different vendor products. Things are very different. Throw a checkpoint in there, forget it. I mean, it's just going to be something where product specialty becomes an important thing. So I think a lot of times when these M&A deals come through and they look at how they're going to consolidate IT and security operations, they don't realize that it's not a one for one for each type of equipment and each type of person that you have in the environment. And often that delays a lot of things. And it's not this, hey, we're going to stand up a sock in 24 hours because now we put two companies together. It just it doesn't work that way. Awesome. I also want to touch on, before we run out of time, on the fact that you've done so many different incident response investigations. Can you share a little bit on maybe how that has evolved over time or over the course of your career dealing with them? I wish it's evolved more in a weird way. Um, I would say it's uh, it's a slow evolution. You know, fundamentally, I mean, I think some of the things have changed as far as the type of maybe better understanding of certain artifacts. Early on, uh, it was a very manual process to parse things. And like say, if you're doing dead box forensics, uh, even memory forensics to a large degree, there wasn't tools that can automate some of those processes. And by no means is a tool an answer to all problems, but it's going to help build efficiencies if you understand the process. But, you know, early on, it was deconstructing things things in hex editors. It was a very manual process. It took very, very long time. Now you can script and automate a lot of those and these tools, big engines that can build databases. So that's gotten better. You know, some of the challenges though is, you know, when I see things like the SolarWinds incident, you know, the TTPs that were really, when you known about that, how somebody's past the supply chain thing of how somebody gets in, once they get in, they move laterally, privilege escalation, build back doors, get domain, get other accounts, and just build this persistence mechanism. We've been tracking that 
that since 2006, 2007. There's nothing new about that. And that's the frustrating part to me is saying, while we think some of the technologies evolved to allow us to be more efficient, some of the root things that we should be looking for are not. And I think there needs to be a greater focus on detection and response and building out response capabilities as opposed to an afterthought past defense. Is there a reason you think why that hasn't happened yet or why it's taking so long? It's hard. Um, and it's not a technology problem. Look, I look for a technology vendor. I want to be able to say we're the best in the world. We can stop everything, detect anything. That's not the reality. Most of the platforms that are out there um, or tools that are out there are only going to be part of the picture. They're not going to solve everything. And it's really when you look at the entire security operations, it's going to be people, process, and technology. Technology is only a small percentage. And if you take within that technology stack, say something like a, a you know, a log aggregator or SIM, that might be like 10% of your program. It's not your entire program. Same thing with AV or next gen AG or blah, 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 whatever the X thing they throw in front of it. We get really excited about cool, shiny objects. We all go to Black Hat, we go to RSA, and we all pat ourselves on the back that all these new things are coming out. But the reality is we're solving the same problems I saw 30 years ago. We don't have good asset inventory. We don't have visibility in our environments. Would it be possible without getting into maybe anything sensitive, sharing an example of an investigation that you supported and what type of advice would you give to leaders when they're building an incident response plan? Absolutely. I had a really interesting one a couple of years ago. As a New Yorker, 9-11 is always a tough day for me. You know, it was kind of very uh, misty. I didn't remember what a bad day it was. But I remember getting the call on my back porch here in Boulder from one of the data breach attorneys said, look, uh, you know, before you have that margarita, Doug, I got a weird one. It's a ransomware attack. I'm like, okay, ransomware is not really kind of my area. I get more of deeper stuff. And she's like, nah, something's, something's out. We can't figure, this is not like a drive-by. Something happened. Sure enough, get into it. And this organization, global company, had 27 sites go down in about nine minutes. Both data centers were down. All the Active Directory controllers were locked up. Data was locked up. They didn't know the extent of it. And we spent all night scoping it out. And this is actually, I'll, I'll jump into the latter part of your question early on, is we get into the next morning. CEO's like, okay, where are we? I was like, guys, I haven't signed the contract yet. They're like, you're not doing any work because we don't have a contract. I'm like, legally, I can't. You know, we have to have a three-way contract with data breach attorney, my company, and yours. He's like, well, my lawyers are still reviewing it. I'm like, I, I get it. And the issue there is not, you know, I tell organizations is get all your vendor contracts done in advance, particularly if you have cyber insurance, reach out, find who the panel providers are, both on the incident response side providers, your breach notification providers, and more importantly, your data breach attorneys. Have all those MSAs in place so you can just get started in hours and not days, and it, it delays things. So we get into this and we really find out that the attacker had really been able to infiltrate the environment from the outside in a way we couldn't find. And we ended up looking across the environment and being able to isolate it. And we actually found it almost self-isolated. It ran so well because the organization's WAN was set up that the Active Directory replication had tripped itself over. So it stopped at a certain point. We were able to start recovering data. And the best active thing that we found to recover the data was their well-vetted and tested tape backup systems or offline systems because most of the ransomware now is targeting volume shadow copies. It's looking for the data. It's looking for the VMs. It's looking for all those things that replicate on site so they know they have a better chance of getting somebody to pay their ransomware. So by them having tape backup, we were able to recover. So we're recovering data, we're rebuilding the Active Directory environment, but still keeping the attack
attacker on the hook because we had all this forensic data. We still didn't know how they got in at that moment. Didn't know if we would need it. Finally, we kind of unpeel the onion enough and I trace it back and we find there was a SQL server that was connected to Active Directory that wasn't DMZ'd properly that had an ex externally facing web app. Attacker got lucky, found an open app they had just forgot about on a SQL server they didn't think about that had trust relation with Active Directory and boom, they're in. And that was, you know, it's one of those things where, again, it comes back to this asset inventory list is, you know, they have to be right. They have to get lucky once. And it sucks that we have to almost be lucky or right all the time. But it's the thing you don't see. It's that one asset you're not thinking of is the way they're going to get in. So I constantly tell people, you know, really focus on the NAS and inventory. And as far as incident response, proper planning prevents poor performance. Make sure you have all those contracts in place well before an incident and your team's ready for it. Because I'll tell you right now, too, these things don't come in on nine to five. They come in late at night and they come in on the weekends for a reason. So why do you think having an accurate asset inventory is so challenging for so many organizations? I think I deal with organizations regularly. And one of the first things I ask is about their asset inventory. And almost, you know, predictably, every single one will come back and say, oh, it's it's not necessarily up to date, or the process is manual and really depends on the teams that are keeping it updated. Why is it so challenging? And, and what do you think needs to be done to solve that problem? You know, I equate a lot to the psychology of, you know, getting fit. You know, people look for these shortcuts. It's a hard thing. And when you say, hey, I'm, I really want to, like, get my body fat percentage down and I want to lose some weight, there's no shortcutting the fact that you need to get out and do some exercising and you have to eat right. And it's going to take time and it's going to take persistence of doing that every day. And I think that's one of the hard things about that is that security is, it's like that. It's not a shot in the arm. It's like going to the gym every single day and just nuancing and working things out. And you're going to have setbacks. You're going to get hurt, but you have to put in, you have to grind. And it just, it's the reality of it that we don't talk about. And I think that's the problem as we bring people into this. We stage things as this very much do this, then that, and you achieve these KPIs and goals. But the reality is it's, it's, a, it's a journey. It never ends. You know, it's not like you get to this top of the security mountaintop you get to the top and you look up and there's still more mountain. So you, it's this idea that you have to constantly try to prep people for this idea that it's a continuous cycle, it's iterative, it's a learning process, but it needs to be where the focus is on budgeting too. You know, there there are not, you know, there's no one necessarily silver bullet that's going to do it for that asset inventory, but it needs to be a focus. And also to that, there's almost a, a pose thought is, okay, well, done is better than perfect. I'm not saying get it perfect. I'm saying getting it better each time. And so start somewhere, even if you had 20% visibility, cool. How soon can you get realistically to 25? Is that a month, a week, and then go to 35? And whatever it is that you just do the stepped approach to get it to a place that's manageable and then mitigate the risk around the things that you're not going to be able to see, but really put detection around the visibility that you have and build automation around that then allows you to focus on those unknowns more. But again, it's this staged approach and I think, again, we're stuck in this trap now where folks are thinking, oh, I can use machine learning and automation to find all the unknown things. And that asset inventory is not going to matter because I'm going to, that's going to cover the blind spots. All that's going to do is accelerate bad information. You still have to focus on building repeatable processes based around assets, inventory and processes, you know, automate those focus your, the rest of your staff on the unknowns and just keep that process up until you just have a good manageable way of saying, okay, I can, I can risk tolerate this unknown. That's going to be a manual effort. Automation is going to help out on the things I already know. So 
let's maybe shift gears a little bit to talk about a topic that I quite enjoy. And it's my love for drones and the fact that I actually own some DJI drones just personally for fun. I would love to learn from you about your work with various Chinese-based organizations. And in particular, what are some thoughts that you have about the privacy concerns and security concerns that people bring up about using uh, their technology? And also, if you have any maybe interesting takeaways or things that surprised you about their security practices? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think, you know, it, it gets overly politicized at times and, and time should. It's inevitably the Chinese government has their agenda. And I would say this in kind of a blanket statement that there's also a lot of Chinese companies that don't necessarily share the alignment with how the Chinese government operates. Um, you know, some of these companies I've talked to have said, look, you know, you folks in the U.S. think we're the enemy and that you have all these things and think we're stealing all this data. It's like, we're just a startup. And I think it's a lot of part of your question. The thing that surprised me the most was you know, going to Shenzhen and seeing this tech center that really reminded me of the Bay Area. You know, these folks, young people working hard coding, the culture there was very serious to the Bay Area. It was people that were very westernized in certain ways and the, the mentality, there was a very startup vibe that reminded me. And it really got me to see is that they were a lot like us. And I think that's the fallacy that we have is that they're against us and not realizing how much we share in common and that they have a distrust of their government. They have a distrust of our government as much as we do. They have that mentality of trust, but verify more than we, we appreciate. And reality is that they really want to work hard and actually have some really well built out, documented and thoughtful programs when it comes to governance and the way that they organize this. I think because they know they're in a particularly sensitive environment, you know, they're getting criticism from the Chinese government for how they operate and tons of requests. You know, they get a, a, you know, all the, the political backlash of just politicians. And we saw politicians in India and the U.S., just throwing their hands up about TikTok and saying, I know this company is doing this with zero proof. And the same thing happened with, with DJI. It was to this day, we don't know how some of those government reports came out, but they were kind of insane at times with no factual basis. I wrote a report that's now been vetted multiple times globally, even by US agencies that said, you know, Doug's report was right. There was really no thing. It was well thought out, you know, Sure, there's vulnerabilities in any system, but the claims that were made were kind of unfounded. And to this day, the government's, our government's never retracted that report or even said anything otherwise. So it just, to me, is I, I try to look at things in the unpolitical sphere of things. I understand there's, there's influences of that, but the reality is these companies are just trying to create cool products just as much as we are. Like you said, DJ, the reason DJI drones became so popular is because they worked really well. They built a vertically integrated manufacturing process where they weren't using third parties. They had control over their supply chain. Why their assessment was really easy to do too, right? You know, it's things that we look at today is all this third party risk. They manage that well in advance. So there's a lot of things that these organizations do um, that allow them to be uh, competitive in a capitalistic and development space that we need to learn from and not say, oh, they're the enemy. So it's got to just change this mindset that somehow, because you're in a country, you share the viewpoints of whatever the loudest political party is at that point, and really try to look at things in more of a pragmatic and, and realistic way. Because this goes back to my forensic roots, is I need to be that disinterested third party. I need to look at things and say, does the evidence support this? And try to find every way to pick apart my own theories until there's nothing left but the truth. Not to prove my point, but to say, okay, I'm going to look at things skeptically. And I went in there looking for it. I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to find something. Uh, I found that money of the Chinese companies had, again, better processes and were remediating things faster than their U.S.-based counterparts. Now, what about your thoughts on TikTok and, you know, how politicians started really talking about how TikTok being a Chinese-owned company and they would block it in the U.S.? Any thoughts or, or concerns that you had then? 
Yeah, and I think there's, again, there's a political aspect to that. And I, you know, have to be careful with work and all naming names or anything. But if you were to do some research on some of the politicians that were saying this on both sides of the aisle, uh, and maybe who was funding them, you know, if there was particular companies in the tech area that might have influenced some of that due to, let's say, potential ad revenue growth. So again, people, by all means, use your own your own analysis, but look at the ad revenue growth of TikTok versus some of their contemporaries. They started eating off other people's plate. And all of a sudden, the politics that came out of them, again, just shockingly had some of the political bankrolls from some other companies. So again, I have no facts on this, but I, it's, it's one of those that at least begs a question when you start following the money. That being said, is some of the claims are very easy to make because, again, it's the Chinese boogeyman, and it's a great distraction from dealing with real issues on the political space. And I'm quite frankly, I'm glad people are talking about privacy. I wish it was in a more meaningful way and not just building scarecrows to do this because, uh, to me, as if I'm a politician, it's an easy thing to say, look, this is a, it's kind of, a, it's an easy issue to get behind for, for both sides of the aisle to say, well, look, you know, data privacy is concerning. Somebody's trying to steal your data. You see all these data breaches, you know. I'm here for you. And honestly, you can get a lot of people across the political spectrum to fall behind that. So it's an easy thing to stand on a pulpit for and, and try to build an audience. The reality is I want to see the facts to support that. And so I think it's very easy to sensationalize the privacy concerns of a popular company, particularly based where they are. That's unfounded because it's easy. It gets attention. It grabs headlines. But until I see the proof and I'll go and do it, and I'm one of the few people that have, I, I, I'm, you have to change me by showing up evidence, not just making accusations. So I, my hope is that out of this is that there is greater talks about privacy, how it's being constructed within organizations, because I think it is, is, is a fundamental concern globally. But it needs to be pragmatic and it needs to be something that's not a zero sum game or a lot of he said, she said. It's like, OK, well, companies want to operate. We want these companies to grow. We want to have high paying tech jobs that work within the technology sphere. How do we all work together to find a way that is beneficial to capitalist intents, but protects, protects the consumers as well? So my hope is that, you know, the government can be partially involved with that, not sensationalize it, but really listen to the experts and not just the fear mongering. Awesome. Well, Doug, you know, you're a big advocate for mental health, and I want to kind of shift gears and talk a little bit about that. You know, it's a huge issue and area of focus today in the security industry, especially due to things like staffing shortages and burnout, especially amongst the leadership groups as well, for example, the CISOs. What advice would you have for security leaders to address mental health? And how are you guys dealing with that today? Yeah, it's a tough one. Um, I mean, there's no doubt about it. The last year has been particularly tough. But underlying that, it's been an, it's an issue that's been coming up for a long time that we don't talk about enough. So I think first of it is just having honest and frank discussions about it because we don't. And there was a nominate study in 2019, and this was just for the CISOs and a lot of my peers that I deal with on a daily basis, but they really did this, this survey that was heartbreaking a little bit. You know, they looked at global cybersecurity professionals and 91% of the CISOs surveyed said that their stress levels were suffering from moderate to high, 60% rarely disconnected from their work role. Um, in the US, almost 90% of them have never taken a two-week break from their job. And a lot of them feel that they're, that there's going to be a breach is that inevitable in their environment, while the CISOs CEOs in their in the same organization, only about 60% found what breach was inevitable. So there's a huge gap where these folks are just burning out. 
So I think a lot West has to happen. And you know, we talk about top-down security and, and top-down leadership. Well, that has to go for mental health too. It needs to be something that's adopted at the board and the C-suite level too, to recognize that you're only as good as the people that are working for you when they're at their best. Because there needs to be this recognition that humans aren't batteries. You can't just revolve through them. Cost of acquiring a good cybersecurity professional right now is very high. And if you have a CISO, they're even harder to get. So you don't want to be churning these folks every 18 months or, you know, say three to four years as an analyst or two years as an analyst. Hiring these people, training these people, getting them on board increases the cost, reduces efficiencies. You don't really see value out of somebody for until over a year. So we need to change this idea of how we hire people. And quite frankly, I'd say it's changed too. Now, when I started in consulting, you know, it was very easy to continue just, just this idea that you had to work 80, 90 hours a week. That's changed. More and more of the folks that I've hired in the past you know, decade or so, their, their focus has been on balancing mental health. So I think there's also going to be an under current that we just can't continue this way. And, and I, I have the numbers to support it too. It's that you know when I hired people and made sure they had that actual work-life balance they wanted, and then maybe I had to hire a couple of other people to help balance out the total number of hours of work that need to get done in any given week and not expect somebody to do 60, 70 hours, 35. I want the best out of them. And what I found happening was the staff was happier. Therefore, they were better at their jobs. They were more efficient. We didn't have to repeat work over and over again. I didn't have to write off hours because somebody started tail end being you know, inefficient and just I couldn't even read their reports. So I ended up with higher employee satisfaction, higher employee retention. This resulted in happier customers, more top line revenues. And overall, because I wasn't having to write down extra hours to do the same amount of thing, I had greater profit margins. When people feel the best, they perform at their best. So this idea that it's mental health versus business, it, it doesn't make any sense. There is no zero-sum game. So if we construct that from the leadership level down and appreciate the fact that you can do more to, to retain your employees by giving them a better self-care environment, they're going to be better employees for you. And it's a better investment. So looking at folks as an investment within your organization and promoting their health, mental health and well-being is going to be, I think, something that we need for business, but also is going to be something we don't have a choice to adopt because more and more the younger generations that are coming in are looking at us that are, that are all burnt out, that are working 60 hours a week, that don't see, I've never seen their father that was a CISO and go, I don't want that for me. This doesn't make sense. These people look miserable. So we really have to come again from this top-down approach of understanding what mental health is going to be, how it affects the individuals in the organization, and again, support that mental well-being. Excellent. Can you also maybe share a little bit about neurodiversity initiatives that you're supporting at Splunk? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the mental health aspect is just one part of the neurodiversity kind of journey. Um, and the way that we look at things, you know, particularly around neurodiversity is this idea that, you know, things that have been this neurological differences like autism, ADHD, mood and other functions, which have been historically viewed as negative perception, but they're just natural variations of the human genome. So it's a different way of looking at these things that have been traditionally pathologized. So this viewpoint that, you know, neurodivergent people and and, and neurodiversity says that these folks have exceptional abilities alongside what has traditionally been viewed as a disability. And this shift from looking that these types of mood disorders, these other different ways of approaching the neurodivergence is not something that needs to be fixed. It needs to be something that's adopted and supported. And it's it's a different way of thinking of it. But when you find this, again, it goes back to some of the things we're doing at Splunk is autism hiring. It's like, how do we understand somebody, how where they're coming from and get the best out of them instead of saying, you thou shalt think like we do, you 
know, a square pegged around home. It's this idea that a diverse mental environment is going to give you more candidates, but also probably a better output. You know, when I've staffed folks that have been um, neurodivergent or gay or black or Hispanic or females, and we all get in a room, you know what I find is I don't get affinity bias. And that's what I have my greatest fear is that, again, forensic practitioner, scientific mind is I'm going to build an own echo chamber of people telling me what I want to hear. I need diversity in thought to increase better output for my customers. And I found that's been the case. And so to me, it's I want to see so many things from different angles, who they are differently fundamentally to the way they think. And it just, you find you get a better outcome overall when you bring a lot of different people to the table. For sure. And that makes a lot of sense. Well, you know, we want to end our conversation typically talking about something not related to security or work, per se. So I know from our previous conversations, you are somewhat of a cocktail connoisseur. So I have a couple of questions regarding cocktails for you. Number one is, what is your favorite cocktail? And what is your favorite cocktail bar? And the second one is, is there a cocktail that is extremely unique that you can share with us? Ooh, that's a tough one. It's like, it's, I mean, I'm only a, a, a father of one kid, but I can only imagine that it's asking like, which is your favorite kid over the favorite cocktails? And there's a weird way I'm a traditionalist too. Like maybe like I do in security, I got to build on foundations, but I've always been a fan of Rye Manhattan's uh, stirred to the employees only way of 20, 30 seconds, the right vermouth um, and the right bitters strained and up. From there, I love doing variations off of things. So the Red Hooks, the Green Points, um, there's a Carol Gardens, those types I really love. Um, and even with Negronis, I love the gin profile and what you can do the same thing with that and found things like a white Negroni. And there's a particular gin that I love for that, um, St. George gin out of uh, the rye gin out of uh, San Francisco that is uh, with sailors and Coke Americanos, just it's amazing. Um, but I've also found that there's variations you can do on that, swapping out the gin for mezcal. So one of the things I do in my home bar is I'll infuse the Malgue Vita. So I'll take the mezcal. There's a couple other ones too, and I'll infuse it with hibiscus for about four hours, strain that, and then use that in a scorched earth cocktail, which is basically it's a mezcal infused or hibiscus infused mezcal Negroni. That's really good and in, in, you know, using grin. Uh, Grand Classico as opposed to Campari. So there's all these little variations on the basics I love playing with um, and, and always kind of exploring from there because you kind of go into these forks, right? It's almost like forking code. Like you have your, your, your base builds and then you kind of go out. And I find those become really unique because it's very also easy to overcomplicate it and try to do these things with too many unique ingredients and almost too many, too many parts. To me, it's like, how can you do it really well with the basics? That's hard. A lot of people can't do that right. And it's always my litmus test when I go into a bar. They'll say, you know, uh, ride Manhattan up. And if I'll just watch how they make it, how they pour it. And that will set the tone if I'm going to switch to wine or something else. Because if they can't just get the basics right, then there's no point of going forward. And there's a lot of bars that get that and they'll they maybe interact with you too. That's why I love sitting down at the bar and just kind of workshopping things. One, if you really get into cocktails, it's a great way to find free cocktails because as you try new things, they'll be like, oh, I'm going to pick up this one. And your bartenders love that. Like a good mixologist is going to want to go back and forth and, and work with you. And, and one of the, the better bars that I found recently, I would probably say is Death and Taxes. That was a great place. Uh, it just has that dark kind of speakeasy feel, but it's not like, again, we're also overdoing it with some of the speakeasies where you can't find them. And it's just like, I just want the vibe. I don't, I don't need this to be a pain in the ass to find the place. 
And so once you get in there, it's really, it's just really cool. And they have a really good selection of some things. And, you know, if you want to say, oh, there's a, you know, I'm really trying to think about things with Japanese gins now. Japanese gins now are amazing, um, particularly from the whiskey distillers out there. Uh, Roku's got, or the Hibiki Roku's amazing. And so you start playing around with some of those um, and say, hey, here's what we're going to work with. And we were there recently. This was during Wild West Hacking Fest in Reno. And I'm like, well, what if we did this and this? And we came up with it. And I had to find out the the actual measurements we had, but it was it was the uh, Hibiki. Roko gin, yellow chartreuse, lemon, and I want to say there was maybe one other thing. And it was unbelievable. And she, she says, you know, we're going to put this on the menu kind of thing. Because it was just, there was something very uh, herbaceous about it, but smooth, but super boozy. So it, it had a really cool flavor profile. So for me, it's always like, again, working off some of those basics and tweaking out things. That's awesome. I mean, I was actually familiar with the the Japanese whiskeys gaining popularity, but I didn't know about the Japanese gins. So I'll have I'm, to- I'm actually terrified now to tell people because the price points on them are amazing. And I'm afraid people are going to find out and it's going to be like Japanese whiskeys where you can't get yep. them. <laughs> yep. Nope, I, I I remember I remember that that phase, and I've been through it with the whiskeys. It's a little scary how quickly the prices shot up for those. Well, if you're ever in Boston, you know we'll have to go to a couple of the cocktail bars here, and you're gonna have to tell me how how they compare to the other ones you've been to, including Death and Taxes. I haven't I haven't been to that one. It, it's wonderful, it, and even you know I, I hope I hope Hong Kong makes it out of its political strife. There was uh, great bars and bartenders there. Uh, yeah, to me, I just love traveling, seeing seeing the local cocktail scene it's one of my favorite things awesome well doug thank you so much for your time it's been a true pleasure and thank you for taking your time and sharing all your insights and advice with us i really appreciate it my pleasure anytime thank you this has been an agent of influence podcast with nabil hanan portions of this interview can be found in print on the netspy executive blog and please subscribe for future episodes of agent of influence at www.netspy.com slash agent of influence.